I was, uh, I was not sure what the Lord was doing, to be quite honest, when uh, I started preparing for today. I had a whole direction to go. And like he was saying before, when you don't get a chance to speak all that often, and uh, I was a pastor for about 10 years up in uh, northern Illinois and out in Pennsylvania, and uh, when you don't get a chance to speak all that often, you get, you get these opportunities, they come every once in a while, and then you're like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really like muscle up for this one, and I'm going to dig deep, and I'm going to impress some people with my deep theological knowledge and my ability to really, you know, you know, tell them about Greek and Hebrew. And by the time I'm done, everybody in the whole, the whole congregation is just going to be like, wow. Now, you know that that's pride when that happens. And, and the Lord never lets that happen. And if you get up and you're trying to do that, it's going to fail miserably. But as I was preparing, I had something in mind and I thought about it. And I was like, oh, I think that's where the Lord will have me go. And then last week, the Lord started preparing uh, what I was really supposed to be speaking about. And uh, for the last week and a half, literally every day, either from a message on the radio or from my Bible reading, and by the way, I read through the Bible on a schedule. I follow somebody else's schedule, so it's not like random. On a schedule, I, and it all hit together at the same time, and the Lord made it very, very clear that what I was supposed to be speaking about had nothing to do with my original intention. And then I come here this morning and I hear what's going on and I hear about people's lives and I'm like, oh yeah, the Lord knew what he was doing. Because this morning as we get started, what I want us to understand and look at, and we're going to talk about this for the next two weeks, is burdens. Anybody ever been burdened? Oh yeah, I, I, y'all have been burdened and I think we've all been burdened at one point in time or another. And I think when you're in a burden, you really know what a burden is. And what I'm talking about when I'm, when I'm saying burden, I'm not talking about, um, you know, I, I have a heavy backpack. I'm not talking about uh, the ideas that, uh, man, I woke up late today and I was, I was having a hard time getting to work. I'm not talking about normal circumstances of life. I'm talking about a weight on your life that makes you wish you weren't living anymore. I'm talking about depression. I'm talking about a burden that is beyond your capabilities to handle. I'm talking about more than the world can even lay on your shoulders. You ever been burdened? I've been burdened. And in those moments of burden, you don't really ever question whether or not you're burdened because those are the moments where you can't, you can't even force yourself to get out of bed in the morning. Those are the moments where you say to yourself, why do I even try? What's the point? Those are the moments where you can see something funny and your response is not to laugh, but you cry. Ever been burdened? Now, I do want to give a couple of understandings here about burdens. Burdens are not temptations. What I'm talking about today is not when you are tempted to sin, and temptation can be strong. I'm not talking about trials or tests that you're being put in in your spiritual life. Those can be strong, and those can be difficult, and those can be things that you definitely need God's grace and strength to endure. But I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm not talking about temptation I'm not talking about a sin problem in your life. I'm not talking about 
your besetting sin. And I've got besetting sins, and I think if all of us are honest, there are things and areas in our lives where we fail constantly, and we have a hard time getting victory over. I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm talking about something more than that. And I'm not talking about something that randomly occurs. I'm talking about something that has been placed in your life for a specific purpose. I'm talking about a divine origin here. And as I speak about this, I want you to completely understand that burdens are absolutely external in their origin, and their origin comes, I'm going to tell you this, they come from God. The burdens that I'm talking about today come from God. You say, I don't understand how that can happen. I don't understand why things that make me feel that way are from God. Uh, We'll get there. But I also want you to understand that the burdens that I'm talking about are divine also in their purpose. As we get started, I want you to just jump really quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be a little bit all over the place a little bit, so I hope you you brought your nimble fingers this morning. We're going to look at a couple different passages. I'll read them out loud, and uh, I was not prepared this morning to put up slides, but next week I'll have slides for us so that uh, you can just read what I got up there. But we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12, I'm going to start reading in verses, verses 7 all the way through verse 10. It says, "...unless I should be exalted above measure..." Through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And we see the divine origin, don't we? A thorn in the flesh. And here we have the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He comes down to the next verse here. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times. He asks God that it might depart from me. And he said, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, in my ailments, in my problems, in my, let's put in the word, in my burden, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in my burdens, in the reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, I'm strong. What's the purpose of burdens? I'll tell you. God uses it in twofold way. Number one, He uses it for His glory. He wants to make much of Himself. The, the question arises now at this point. Why are you alive? Why are you here? What purpose do you have in breathing another breath and, and stepping another step and going to work another day in earning a paycheck and paying your bills and being a responsible parent and doing all the things that you're called to do? What is your purpose? And there's only two options, really. You're either here for your own sake, your own pleasure, and your own fulfillment, or you're here for God's glory. Are you here because I want to be a better person, I think that is going to make my life better? I'm talking about here this morning in the chair that you're sitting in. Did you come this morning 
so that you can become a better person and, and feel better about yourself and have more success. And you feel like today, if I go to church and I do these things and I sing the songs and I listen to preaching and I read the Bible, I'm going to get blessing for God, from God and that's going to make me happier. Is that what your Christianity is about? Or did you come here today for the purpose of changing your life and giving a sacrifice of praise to God in order that he would be glorified with who you are and how you live? Because those are really the only two options when you break it down to the nuts and bolts. Why are you here? Paul understood that and that he, in his burden was given the opportunity to glorify God more. To be more for him. A greater example of God's grace on his life. So as he sees this and as we understand burdens and what they are and what we're supposed to be doing, it should drive us to a a consideration of why do we live our lives the way we do. But There's something a little frustrating Isn't it frustrating to look around you and see people that have no burdens? Come on, let me get an amen here. I mean, how many of you are on Facebook? Let's just have a raise of hands. Okay, some of you. Some of you are, you know, you abstain from Facebook. I'm a a Facebook abstainer. I used to be one of the crowd, and I said no to Facebook, so... You know, remember Barbara Bush? He's like, say no to drugs. I say no to Facebook. Um, I'm on there more. I I still am on Facebook. (laughs) But as you are on Facebook, you see people who live Facebook Christianity. You know what I mean by that? Everything's always great. And they're always getting amazingly blessed. And I don't know about the word amazing, because I don't think it means, you know... uh, you ever watch Princess Bride? I don't think that word means what they think it means because everything in their life is amazing. It was just so amazing today. The sunset was amazing. The sunrise was amazing. My children are amazing. My husband is amazing. Come on, seriously, your husband is amazing? Let's be real. Your husband is okay today. Yesterday, he, he wasn't at all. Tomorrow, you hope. You hope that maybe you'll like him still. I mean, let's just be honest with ourselves. And, and people live that Facebook Christianity. And you wonder, really? No burdens? I want to tell you this. Everybody is burdened. Everybody has burdens. Except one type of person. I want you to take a quick peek, and this is not going to, I don't want to go here for a long period of time, but I do want to take a quick peek to the book of Psalms. Psalm number 73. And I want you to see David and his frustration, because he gets really irritated about this. Enough that he goes to God and is like, what? I don't get this. Why, Why is this so? Chapter 73, we're going to read here uh, verses 1 through 8. Psalm number 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, and he comes and he knows 
who he really is. Let's, he's honest with himself. As for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. My faith was failing. My, my behavior was sinful. I was falling down consistently before God. Verse 3, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. And haven't you ever looked at people who are evil and just horrible people? And you say, God, I am struggling. I'm struggling because I want to go back to school and learn what you want me to do with my life. I'm struggling because I want to take care of my family. I'm struggling to make it day to day. And now I look around me and I see these horrible people and they're successful and they have no burdens and they're happy all the time. God, I don't understand. And doesn't that hurt your faith a little bit? When you go to God and you say, why? I don't understand how these people, these wicked people who reject you, are successful and seemingly blessed consistently, and yet me, I can't even buy a break. Why is that? Why is that, God? Look what he says here. Verse 9, I'm going to continue here. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people returned hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? They are ridiculing and mocking God in their disobedience, and yet they're still blessed. Do you see how this can make us feel weak in our faith? I find myself in that position sometimes. I don't have time, and that's not the point of this passage, but I do want you to understand that God doesn't deal with them because they're not his children. This is just a, a, a this is a, I'm going to jump over here because this isn't part, part of the message, okay? He's not, he's not dealing with them because they're not his kids. I talked a bit about this to my kids the other day, and I said, you know what, there's that child over there, and he's naughty, and he's acting wrong. And I can't punish him. Do you know why I can't punish him? Because I'm not his daddy. I don't get to light him up like you get lit up. And it's not my responsible and it's not my privilege to do that. And God does not discipline those who are not his own children, who are not part of his family. But they will be judged. And they will be judged in the day of judgment. And their judgment is far worse because of it. Back to where we are at. It can be frustrating to see those around us seemingly with no burdens at all as we trudge from day to day, barely being able to lift our feet out of the mud and muck around us, and it's frustrating. But I want to talk, and I'm going to spend the next, really, two weeks talking about these two men who had two different approaches to the burdens that God put on their lives. There are two men in the Old Testament, and there's lots of men you can look at who have burdens. I mean, 
if we were to spend time going through every man of faith in the scriptures who had a burden, you start with, you know, Adam. Man, talk about some burdens that Adam had and how he responded to burdens. Moses had burdens. Abraham had burdens. You think about people who had burdens, David, and he notates and chronicles his burdens extensively throughout the Psalms. Uh, If you didn't see what we just talked about, he had burdens. You go to the New Testament, and we just saw Apostle Paul with his burdens. You think of all the apostles as they dealt with the burden of their Savior dying on the cross and the intensity of that burden and the shaking of their faith that that must have been. But men all throughout Scripture dealt with burdens. But we're going to look at two. Because they have very contrasting ways to deal with it. Today I want us to concentrate on the attitude that you deal with your burdens with. I want us to go to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. There was a really bad king in the Old Testament. He was named Ahab. Ahab was a horrible king. He was a wretched king. And he had a miserable excuse of a wife. Anybody want to throw it out there? Jezebel, that's right. Uh, anybody know anybody named Jezebel? You know, you know I want to name my daughter after somebody, you know, great role model. Jezebel, great name, right? No, uh, probably not on your top 10 for your list of what you're going to name your next kids. But in 1 Kings 19, we have here Ahab speaking to Jezebel about Elijah because Elijah has just done an amazing miracle. He called all the temple, all the prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Baal, and he had a, a praying contest, for lack of better terms. He's there, and they set up two altars, and he says, you know what? We'll find out who really is God in Israel. You have Baal here, and I'll, I'll uh, build an altar over here, and you, you spend all the time you need. You build that altar, and you pray to God. You pray to your Baal. And, and whoever accepts the sacrifice by consuming it, by lighting the, the sacrifice, whichever God does it first, wins. We all remember this, and they, they pray, and they beg, and they plead, and they, they pour out their hearts, and they cut themselves and sacrifice, and they're weeping, and they go on for hours, even to the point where Elijah gets a little snarky and starts mocking them. He goes, oh, do it a little louder, a little louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's using the bathroom. I mean, he goes on into, like, he's, he really gets into their, into their uh, business a little bit, and he, you know, rubbing the salt into the wounds that that they can't get Baal to answer. And then over here, he builds his altar, and then he has them dig a trench around it, and then he has them, in the middle of a drought, pour water, buckets and buckets of water over his sacrifice and over his altar until the trench that he had dug around it is completely full of water. And he prays a prayer, one paragraph, one small paragraph. He prays this prayer And God sends fire down and it licks up the sacrifice. It licks up the wood. It licks up the rocks and the stones. It licks up 
the water that was around it and everything, bam, gone. He prays this small prayer and it's so evident that Jehovah God is God. Now you would think that this experience would be a faith builder, wouldn't it? You pray, you see God work, and God doesn't just work, God works. You see something that only God can do, and he does something amazing and intense in his life, and he sees that happen. Now this is Ahab's account to Jezebel about what Elijah did after that, because then Elijah had all those prophets of Baal killed. And this is the account, chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And Jezebel comes and she threatens his life and says, You killed my prophets and if by tomorrow you're not dead with them, let the gods kill me. But you're toast. And Elijah's got a burden, doesn't he? He's got something weighing him down. And Elijah responds to this burden in an interesting way, probably the way that I would. Verse 3, and when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. And came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. How does he respond? Number one, he runs. Which I think is the physical reaction that we would have when our life is threatened. We'd be like, ah, get out of here. But then when he gets away, he decides to sit down and his thought process goes to this idea. I'm going to quit. I am going to quit. You ever felt like that? Quit. I quit. There is nothing good left for me to do. There is nothing that I can do. I've tried everything. I'm quitting. There is no response that I can make that's going to make these people do what they're supposed to do. I quit. I never get any success. This guy gets the promotion over me and he's horrible at his job. I quit. I'm not even going to try anymore. You go and you, you just bust it at work hours after hours after hours and nobody notices you. And finally, you're like, whatever, I quit. You need the money more than anybody else does because you got a family to feed and maybe you're down on your luck or something else or a bill came and you say, God, I need you to provide and they cut your hours. I quit, what do I got to do? You're having struggles at home and you, you pour out your heart and you pour out your life to your mate and, and they respond in anger and they respond in, in distrust, or they don't respond at all, and your response is what? I quit! I tried! You nurture your kids, and you, you teach them, and you pour your life into them, and then they make a horrible decision. 
and, and they just reject everything that you've been teaching them. And your response is, I quit. You ever been there? I, I have. That's, that would be my response, probably. God's not content with that response, by the way. He comes to him, and, and look what he does here. My wife has to remind me of this sometime. I've got four kids, and I have to be reminded of this. Uh, verse 5, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. You ever seen the Snickers commercial? And I'm talking about the guy loses it, and somebody goes, man, you are hungry. You need a Snickers bar because you're acting the fool up in here. You, know, you, you, need to, you, you need to take a bite and just chill out because your stomach is controlling your behavior right now. And sometimes, you know, I've got kids, and I'm about to just like, and my wife is like, they are hungry. You know how you are when you're hungry. You need to feed these children before the world ends, you know. Feed these children. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they haven't eaten in like 17 hours, which it's a long, long time. No, I don't do that. Man. She was giving me a look. It was, she was like, what, 17 hours? How dare you do that to your children? No, it's exaggeration for the purpose of illustration. <laughs> then there's something else. Look what he does. <laughs> he goes, uh, I lost my place now. Uh, verse 6, And looked, and behold, there's a cake baked on the coals and a cruise of water at his head, and he eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came and touched him a second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he feeds him again, and he makes him sleep. Two physical responses that God does to Elijah during this time where he has just run away from her. He, he makes them sleep, and he makes him eat. I'm just going to tell you, if you are hungry and you have not slept in a couple of days, you are going to make really bad decisions. It's a physiological thing. So don't do that, all right? This is just a practical, just a practical note from Andrew Hager on today's lesson. Don't make bad, deci- you make bad decisions if you haven't slept and you haven't eaten, okay? Back to it. Look what he says here. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals. Uh, verse, uh, verse 8. Let's skip down to there. And he arose and did eat and, and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mountain of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And God comes to Elijah and asks him, Why you quit? Because isn't that what he did? Forty days ago, Elijah quit. Forty-one days ago, Jezebel made a proclamation. And my question is, where was Jezebel in all this? She, made, she said, I'm going to kill myself if you're not dead by tomorrow. But it's been 41 days, just saying. If she, a little coward. And uh, 40 nights in Horeb, and he comes and God says to him, what are you doing here? Verse 9. And here is Elijah's response. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And his response here, number one, 
is pride. God, I have done everything you told me to do. I've even done it better than everybody else. And I am, I am just fed up because this is the result. And he is filled with thoughts about who he is and what he has done and how he has been mistreated. He is filled with pride. And you see also he's filled with complaining. He complains about the results and he complains about the response. What did God just do for him? That he is totally overlooking. He totally misses the point here, doesn't he? That God just did a huge miracle based on his ministry. And he works through him in an amazing, miraculous way and he skips all over that. God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why, why, doesn't, why don't we see the great results? What do you mean the great results? I just gave you great results. And I'm telling you, I want to show you this, that many times in our burdens, we are so focused on the burden that we lose sight of God. And Elijah is so focused on his burden, and he's so focused on this thing that's in his life that's oppressing him, that he misses out on seeing the amazing, miraculous work in hand of the divine. And if you're not careful, as God puts a burden in your life, you're going to miss the whole scope of everything that he's trying to do. You know, I recently had a burden in my life, and I prayed, and I, 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 I was, you know, absolutely positive that this thing was going to happen. I was so so positive because I had poured everything into my prayer and into uh, making sure that my heart was right and that the request was right. And I, and I did everything that I thought I did. I did it all right. You know what I'm saying? You ever gone to God and said, God, you know, and you're humble and you're in the word and you're consistent and you're doing, and you think everything's good. Everything's good. And I know that God wants this. And I pray in his will. And I pray and I say, God, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And in the back of your mind, you're looking at one pinpoint little thing. And that's the thing that you want God to do, right? You want God to give you that, that one little thing. And I was praying for a pinpoint, you know. God wasn't interested in blessing me with that. God was interesting, interested in blessing me by avoiding that. Now, it took me six months to see what God was doing. But you know what? For six months after God didn't give me what I thought, I was like Elijah. What's the point? What is the point? I asked for it. I thought it was the right thing. It's in your will, God. I said, Lord, I know this, is, this, is the, this will give the effect that you want to have in my life. I know this is what you want. But you didn't give it to me. You didn't do what I thought what should happen. Why not? And for six months, I missed out on seeing how God was orchestrating step by step by step by step by step what he really wanted. You know, after six months, what I thought I wanted, that little thing, he offered it to me. 
And after six months, I was like, <laughs> that would be really bad for me. That would be really bad for me. And I was able to see God doing it. But my attitude was wrong. Had I had the right attitude, I would have been able to see God's blessing and see his direction and be able to praise him and glorify him for the whole thing instead of having to wait six months of miserable burden bearing where I just didn't get it because I was so focused on what he didn't give me. I'm going to stop there with Elijah. There's a lot more to this story. We'll get to some of it next week. But I want us to move over to another guy. Let's go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. So if you don't know where Nehemiah is at, it's right after Ezra. If you don't know where Ezra is at, it's after Second Chronicles. If you don't know where that's at, there's a little place in the front of your Bible and you can look and it'll tell you where they're both at. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, Nehemiah, he is in a different period of time than uh, what we just saw with Elijah. Nehemiah is uh, in Persia. And he is there with King Artaxerxes uh, of Persia. He is actually his personal cupbearer. He's a, a personal attendant to the king. Now, he's been taken to Persia because Jerusalem was besieged and they had taken captive a lot of the people of, of uh, Jerusalem and taken them with them to the empire. And Artaxerxes used all the ones who were trained, all the ones who were well-learned, and he put them into service. And Nehemiah was one of those guys. You see here in verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So he's saying, hey, brother, I want to know, how are they doing back in Jerusalem? Those who escaped, those who, who were able to get away, What's going on? What is Jerusalem like? And he's hoping to hear a good report that they're well taken care of and that they're building the walls and that they're protected. And this is what he gets back. And he said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The walls, the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, I want to point out something between the two guys with the burdens. We had we have Nehemiah, we have Elijah. And both of them feel the same way. I want to point that out because it's important. Feeling the weight of a burden is not sin. Feeling that weight is not the problem. Your response to the weight can be the, the problem. Nehemiah here gets hit with this truth that his brethren, his country, the country that in, in his idea, in his mind, 
is the image of God is broken down and is a reproach and his homeland, his people, they are, they are being afflicted and they have no protection and they're constantly being besieged and they're living in the streets and they're not doing well and it's a horrible environment. And he is hurt by this. And he mourns. And it causes them that feeling and it puts that weight and that burden on his heart. But he responds differently. Do you see how he responds? First of all, if we look here in verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. In contrast to Elijah, who was filled with pride, you see him here living a life full of humility. He immediately says, this is not something that I can handle or that I have any right to. And how does he go about dealing with the burden? He goes to God. And he doesn't just go to God. First, he puts himself in a different posture before God, and that is he's humble. The fact that he fasted is an important thing. It's a very important thing. And if I don't know if Pastor Matt's ever done any studies on fasting with you, but it's a great study if you decide to go through the disciplines of Christianity. Fasting is an important part of it. Even Christ said that there are certain things that don't come without prayer and fasting. There are certain accesses of grace that you don't get without prayer and fasting. And here, Nehemiah, he understands that there is an additional need that he cannot fulfill, that he has to go to God, and he has to show that he's serious and that he's humble and that he needs something more. And he fasts. And he prays. And he mourns. And he puts himself in a position of abject humility. Because God is the only one that can help at this point. When you think that you still have it, that's where you start being prideful. That's when you start complaining about other people. When you think that you still have the ability to generate some success in life, you're not in his position. At that point, you need to recognize God's the only one that can be sufficient for you. Look at this. Verse 4 again, And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. First, the first difference, he doesn't run like Elijah did. He stays. He doesn't quit like Elijah does. He stays. And then he goes to God. Now, continue on. Verse 5, and, I, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven and gr- the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel thy servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house house has sinned. How does he respond here? Repentance. Elijah is accusing. Nehemiah is repenting. 
Elijah points the finger of blame. Nehemiah looks inwardly and says, God, I deserve no more than this, but please, God, forgive me. And he continues on, look further at verse 8. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. And he says, Yes, God, and I rightfully deserve, we rightfully deserve the consequence of our sin and our actions. And the position we're in is exactly where we ought to be, because we did exactly what you said we shouldn't do. We sinned against you. And so you judged us just like we were supposed to get judged. But, God, I want to remind you of something. Verse 9. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. But, God, I want to remind you. I want to remind you, God. And Nehemiah continues his prayer and he says, God, I know we deserve to be here. But... You also promise that if we turn to you, you'll gather us back together. That if we turn to you and we repent and we humble ourselves and we put ourselves where we ought to be, God, you will put us back together and you will heal us. And you will lift our burdens. God, I'm reminding you of your own truth, of your own promises. Are there promises this morning that you need to be reminded of, that you need to be reminding God of, that you need to be praying right now? Promises about whether it be your welfare, whether it be about your job situation, that God will provide all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus? Do you need to be reminded about that? Do you need to be praying that to God and reminding him about that? It's going to strengthen your faith, and it's going to change the way that you look at your burden when you start praying God's promises back to him. You need to get down on your knees and humble yourself, admit that you deserve to be where you're at, and then start praying to God, God, I'm yours, I am your child, and because I'm your child, you've promised me certain things, that if I have the right heart and the right attitude, you will take care of me. There's a lot of promises. It could be about your children, it could be about your job, it could be about your spouse, it could be about this church. Do you have burdens that are weighing you down that you need to go to God about and remind him and remind yourself about what God said? This is self-convicting, I'm just saying. There's lots of things. And I think if we're honest, there's lots of things in every single one of our lives where we have neglected promises of God and we've just forgotten them or we have counted or written them off as not true. And we have said, God, you're God, but you're not faithful. At least not to me. And I don't expect you to be faithful anymore. Or God, you care about children, but you don't care really about mine. And you care about the people of the world, but not necessarily my family. And you stop praying that God would save your relatives or your neighbor or your friends. And that's a burden. But where are you in your faith? He reminds God of what God has promised. Verse 10, Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. He acknowledges God for who he is. 
as we close this morning, I want you to consider this thought. Who is God? Is he some rational being that looks over the earth and without any understanding does his whim? Or does he really have a plan for your life? Is he someone who breaks his word? Or is he faithful to the things that he's promised? Is he someone who looks at your life with casual observance? Or does he, like the scriptures say, know the very hairs on your head? Because your view of God is very much going to determine your response to your burden. We're speaking here about attitude today. And I think we need to consider our attitude when it comes to who God is and what he's allowed in our lives. Can you humble yourself and allow him to do amazing things to lift your burdens? Next week, we're going to talk about actions. It starts, though, with your attitude, and then it goes to your actions. Praise God for what he wants to do and wants to build in your life through the burdens he allows. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it has. Lord, we thank you for these examples that we're able to look at in Scripture and see how you worked in their lives and how you wanted to manifest yourself and make yourself glorious through, through them and through the burdens that you allowed. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this present day to be submissive, to be humble, to lay ourselves down so that we can see what it is you want to do through us. Lord, it is a struggle because we are such a prideful generation. We are so self-centered. Remove that from us. And thank you, God, for allowing us to serve you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.